0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The guest on today's podcast is the author, historian and activist Stella Dadsey. Stella joined me to discuss her latest book, A Kick in the Belly, Women, Slavery and Resistance, which brings to light untold stories of enslaved women's experiences in the West Indies. Thanks very much for joining me. Um, Your new book looks at the experiences of enslaved women in the West Indies. So how have these women's experiences been written about Previously, and why did you think that that needed amending with this new book?
2: Okay, well, I think, as with all women's history, up until quite recently, most of what we read was um, written by men for men. I think Barbara Bush made that point in her quote about history being written in such a way as only they wish to see it. And certainly, when I started studying this field in around the mid 80s, most of what I had read had been written by white males. Um, Having said that, there was a growing number of historians, many of them based in the West Indies, who were beginning to look afresh at this field and in particular to look at the the role of women. And um, I'm talking about women like Lucille maturin mayer Olive Senior, um, and also male historians like Hilary Beckles, Um, just to name a few. So um, it was an area that was beginning to be looked at, but in my experience, much of the debates around what happened to to women through the period of enslavement was happening at a very academic level. It wasn't being popularised. And I I, I can remember in 2007, when they had the 200th anniversary of, of the abolition of slavery, how frustrated I felt because it was an ideal opportunity to focus not just on the role of the enslaved themselves in their own emancipation, but also in particular the role of women. And I felt that was a a serious omission. So for all those reasons, I think it it was important to revisit this area and to, to try to make it more accessible.
0: We'll look at a lot of these areas in more detail as we carry on with the conversation. But to start us off, can you give us a broad idea of how gender impacted on people's experience of slavery
2: well you know women always have their own additional issues don't they and um if you look at the experience of enslavement the most obvious area is is sexual abuse um which began on the coffle line and continued right through into the plantation and beyond um There's also the very real physical toll of the work that was required of the enslaved. And one of the myths, I think, that surrounds the enslavement of women, particularly in the context of the West Indies, is that men did all the hard labour. And one of the things that's emerged from revisiting plantation records, which were kept in quite a lot of detail, um, what we see is that On many of the largest states, particularly in Jamaica, but across the West Indies, women formed the vast majority of the field gangs. So there's been lots of debates about why that was. It could be that women were seen to have more stamina as opposed to physical strength. Um, And that may well, well have been a factor, certainly in terms of the buying and selling prices of women. It's it's fairly evident that their their labour was seen as equal. There was very little differential between the price of a man and the price of a woman. Um, But I think one of the most important aspects is, you know, if you think about abolition, 1807, the actual source of the enslaved was cut off. Slavery itself continued, but the, the, the actual trade across the Atlantic ceased. And what that meant is that suddenly black women for the first time in their history, perhaps, were being encouraged to breed. And as the rates the numbers of people on the plantation declined quite drastically, there was more and more attention given to not only why women weren't breeding, but also um, ways that could be used to ameliorate their experience um, and to reward them for having children in such a way as to encourage them to breed the next generation of, of, of slaves, and that was that was an endeavour that was largely unsuccessful. So, women, I think, were quite uniquely placed to subvert the project of slavery, and I don't think that aspect has ever really been given the proper focus that it deserves.
0: As you say. Is one of the reasons that this hasn't been discussed as much the fact that a lot of these women didn't have opportunities to record their own stories or record their own voices um how did you find that to be true and how do you go about reconstructing their experiences when many of them didn't have the chance to leave records?
2: Well, I think that's a difficult one as as, as you rightly say, you know apart from women like Mary Seacole and um Mary Prince, there were very few women who had the chance to record their stories other than through the, the 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 stories that were told by the enslaved themselves that were passed down and of course the songs and other aspects of their culture through which the experience was was possibly conveyed but you know as with all history i i i see history as a kind of detective work whoever or whatever area you're looking at, you're you're delving in, you're you're digging under stories, you're trying to read the music behind the words, you're trying to uncover different aspects that haven't been looked at before. And certainly if you look at the whole experience of enslavement, um, there are many, many hidden narratives, still hidden within the plantation records, the court records, the diaries, the letters, the accounts that were left to us quite often by white males. And I think part of the challenge, particularly for us as black women, is to reread that stuff, revisit that stuff with our own sensibilities, with our own consciousness and awareness of what it might have felt like and, and how it might have been experienced. And I think that combined with the accounts that we can locate. Not all, always by women, but sometimes about what happened to women. Um, it's it's been a relatively, it's been a challenging task, but it's been a been a relatively uh, achievable task to to begin to delve into what was specific to 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 the enslaved women at that time.
0: Um, A thread that runs throughout the book is women's involvement in resistance. And something I was interested to read about was the fact that this resistance sometimes was violent, but often took other forms. Can you tell us about some of the ways in which women, enslaved women, resisted?
2: Well, um, I think the first, the starting point is to recognise that resistance isn't just about taking up a machete, or burning down the cane fields. If we look at images of resistance, the few that have been passed down to us, it's a very, very male narrative. Um, But actually, a lot of the women who took part in those uprisings are hidden, they're genderless. Um, The historical references refer to the mob as if somehow, you know, the male and female distinction didn't matter. Um, But it's also important to recognise that resistance takes other forms. And a lot of the resistance that is evidence in the records takes the form of very small, subversive acts, some of which are quite humorous. Um, Monk Lewis, who was was a diarist, refers to a, a young woman who persistently refused to open the blinds and when he told her to do it this way then she 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 did it another way or she left some open when they should have closed or vice versa and and you can kind of read into the mindset of that young woman just not being prepared to do exactly as what she was told and I suppose the modern day equivalent would be a go slow um, which we can we can understand people who 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 continue to work but they do it at their own pace in their own time and with their own agency so lots of lots of examples of that that come across um, particularly in the punishment records actually because you see women being persistently whipped and put in the stocks for quite relatively small acts talking back, um, refusing to work as as hard as they should those kinds of things. Um, you also, get a sense of the role women played from some of the language used by the men who, who, who recorded it. For example, there's a reference, I think it was a Trinidadian governor, um, I can't remember, but he, he refers to the violence of turbulent women. And he, he does this in the context of a debate around whether the whip should be abolished for women. Um, I referred earlier to these amelioration policies that were taking. Um, much discussion in parliament how they could encourage women to breed and one of the discussions was about well w- should we stop whipping women and the number of letters that are there in the colonial office records from existing governors or contemporary governors at the time who just talk about we we couldn't manage these women without the whip what would we do without it so so those kinds of hints i think are very telling um Now, there's other examples of women who ended up in court because they'd poisoned the whole family, or um, newspaper records of women, some quite young, who ran away. And if you read between the lines, you see women not just escaping into the swamps, which is the the sort of Hollywood version that we're fed. Um, You see examples of uh, women who are referred to as speaking several languages, or as having forged their own papers. Or even um, one one slave owner um, trying to encourage uh, sea captains not to allow this particular runaway on board, suggesting that women were even prepared to stow away on ship to get away from the plantation. So, as I said, it's about reading behind the official version, and reading it with a new lens. The story of Resistance is a holistic one, and it comes from a place, and it comes from experiences on the Koffel line. It comes from experiences in the barracoons as people were being held um, prior to being embarked on the, um, the slave ships. It certainly occurs with amazing regularity on board ship, both within sight of land and on the open seas. And again, when you look at those stories, you see that women must have played quite a central role because often they were the ones who were left to wander the ships while the men were in shackles. So they were ideally placed. Um, so I think that's a story that needs to be told. And I think the continuities that occur when you think of women like Anna and Zynga, women like Yas and Tewa. Women who fought enslavement, fought colonisation, not always for the best of interest, maybe in their own interest, but nevertheless, they put up a resistance. If you look at those women, you look at the roles they played, you begin to see some of the continuities as you trace their descendants and their sisters and their aunties and their mothers across the Atlantic into the plantations of the British West Indies. And I think all of those examples are examples of resistance. Now, one of the most important aspects of resistance that, again, I think has been underplayed is the sheer desire to stay alive. The sheer ability to retain your humanity in a context of such brutality. And we only have to look at the cultural continuities that exist to this day in Caribbean communities and Um, in in communities of enslaved people who returned to Africa to see how women must have played a central role in things like um, doing our hair, preparing food, um, naming and birthing rituals, um, songs, dances, all those things which are about a people who were brutalised yet refused to be robbed of their humanity.
0: You spoke there about um, the, the desire to stay alive as a form of resistance. What were some of the the survival strategies, as it were, that women in particular employed um, living on plantations?
2: Well, I've talked about the sort of subversive acts and I think it's it's easy, isn't it, to sort of envisage the period of slavery as one long period of toiling in the fields. Of course, what you're looking at is actually an agro-industrial endeavour, six months of which were spent in quite industrialised contexts. The mill houses were, um, you know, tightly run operations that required a huge workforce and and very long hours and and, uh, debilitating conditions. So I think that's the context. And of course, if you look at women and women's roles under slavery what you see um, is that women had, in effect, two choices. They could either work in the, in the fields or they could labour in the house. Now, that, that became more nuanced and more diverse as enslavement became more entrenched. But to begin with, that was the choice. Now, if you look at women who worked in the house, again, there is almost a stereotype that's arisen quite often through the lens of African-American historians who talk about women spending more time on their backs than in the fields and therefore having an easier time of it. That kind of narrative is really discounted. You only have to listen to the words of Mary Prince, who was a domestic slave to realise the extent to which women who worked in close proximity to their oppressors were actually in the front line for all kinds of punishment and brutality. And I think that's borne out when you look at the, 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 the records of runaways, when they started counting the number of people who ran away, quite often you not only see larger numbers of women running away than men, not always, but sometimes, but also larger number of domestic servants than field slaves running away. So again, if you begin to piece that jigsaw together, what you see is a form of resistance that that was also about people heading for the hills.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: The surviving narrative has to be about what an ama- amazing feat it was for people to come through what must have been one of the most brutal episodes in human history, and not only live to tell the tale, but live to tell the tale with laughter, with song, with dance, with exuberance, and with creativity.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments, that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings
0: Speaking about um, women who were kind of forced into close proximity with their oppressors, many enslaved women um, were forced into or entered into sexual relationships with their oppressors. And you have a very interesting take on this because you suggested that it could be quite nuanced and the experiences in those situations can't just be branded with one brush. How do you think that we should view those those relationships or situations?
2: Well, you know... If, you, if your starting point is that survival is a form of resistance, then you can begin to understand those women who either bought into the role of a concubine or um, took advantage of the little power that they were given to survive and live to tell the tale. And I think it's very easy, particularly through a sort of black nationalist lens to try to present enslavement as one-sided or one-dimensional. It wasn't. And obviously in a society where colorism was so entrenched, where the, the closer you were in terms of your appearance to white, the more chance you had of being given a halfway decent um, survival rate. Um, what you see is quite a lot of women both black but, but also mixed-race women who um, not only had slaves themselves if they managed to um, be, be freed, but who also were accused of quite significant brutality. Now, that's an uncomfortable truth, but it has to be placed in the context of the time. As does any violence that we talk about, because as I, as I say in the book, when we talk about the violence that was meted out to slaves, that was by no means unique to the West Indies. And they were still putting people's heads on poles and disembowelling them alive in the courts of British palaces. So um, within that context, you know, the brutality was horrendous, but it wasn't unique, Um but yes, what you see is that women, women sometimes bought into that, and women are sometimes accused of perhaps trying too hard to emulate their white overseers and 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 oppressors. Um, having said that, the stereotype of the so-called mulatto mistress who always sided with the whites and who never um, felt any loyalty to her own kind is is exactly that. It's a stereotype. And there's a tantalising reference in, I think it's a reference to um, one of the uprisings in Jamaica, where a mulatto mistress, so-called, I'm using the language of the times, was seized by a, a group of rebellious slaves and raped, but at the intervention of another group of enslaved people her life was spared because quote she was seen to be on their side. So again you look at little snippets like that and you begin to see as I say that that the story was far more nuanced.
0: Something that you spoke about earlier that I just wanted to ask a bit more about was um, pregnancy and childbirth and motherhood and as you mentioned there were some really shocking debates and discussions about how to um, increase enslaved women's fertility. But something you also discuss is about the ways in which um, enslaved women may or may not have been able to exert control over their own fertility. I wonder if you could tell us about that.
2: Well, as all women know, fertility is probably one area where you have a degree of agency. And there's absolutely no doubt about it. Just if you look at the the, the the bold the the bold facts in terms of demographic rates and the mortality rates and the negative demography that you see right across the British West Indies and in the French Antilles, incidentally, um, what you see is that despite all those efforts, and I'm talking about better diet. Reduced time working in the fields, um, actually giving women rewards like a hog or a cow or or some money for succeeding in bringing a child to term and um, that child surviving beyond the first few weeks of its life. Despite all those efforts, you still see a really dismal decline in the birth rate to the point where you see white planters and overseers in the West India lobby in Britain literally scratching their heads and coming up with all kinds of misogynistic, racist um, explanations for why this might be occurring. Now, among those explanations, apart from accusations that the women themselves were too licentious to be bothered breeding, which which seems rather ironic, um, were accusations that the women were using abortants. Now, how would they know how to use abortants? Where would they get that knowledge from? The only explanation you can come up with is that those women who travelled naked across the Atlantic brought certain knowledge with them, knowledge of plants and herbs being one of them. And it is is fairly well established that women knew how to create their own abortants and how to rid themselves of unwanted pregnancy. Now... That kind of behaviour is also borne out in debates around infanticide. Um, I'm reminded of a young woman called Sabrina Park, who was sent to court and tried and actually um, condemned to death for murdering her own baby. And her exact words were that she could not be bothered to bring a child into slavery to slave for Massa. So... That suggests that while it wasn't necessarily universally the case that women resisted giving birth, clearly that couldn't have been the case. And while we have to acknowledge that where women were able to hold on to their children, where their children weren't sold away, where they had an ongoing relationship with them, or indeed with children of other women who they would adopted and taken under their wing, Um, what you see, again, through the mouths of of the slave owners themselves, is evidence of really fond and enduring ties between mothers and children. Uh, And incidentally, those mothers were prime actors in terms of handing down the culture and the beliefs and the the mindsets um, that we're now talking about. Um, But it's also the case that women were prepared to end their children's lives rather than see them live through the horror that was um, slave, slavery in the West Indies. And I think among the most telling evidence that that was the case is what you see post-emanci- post-emancipation. 1833-34 comes along, the Emancipation uh, a Slavery Bill is passed, and you see a mass exodus from the plantations. You see Uh, landowners, plantation owners fleeing back to Britain. You see the lying-in hospitals that were set up specifically to assist women to give birth being closed down. You see the Scottish and Irish doctors fleeing back to Scotland and Ireland. And yet suddenly the birth rate begins to rise at a steady and quite remarkable pace. And it almost suggests that um, women recognised that they had been given permission to give birth to the next generation. Um, Monk Lewis put it perfectly. He almost he says something like, it, "It seems to me that these women are almost like hens on shipboard who will not lay eggs because they do not like their circumstances." Mm.
0: The book is is full of um, really affecting quotes and stories like the like the ones you just have shared with us what were some of the ones that particularly resonated with you? Maybe um, people's kind of personal stories?
2: Well, um, I think the book's title is is worth, worth um, mm-hmm. focusing yeah. on for a minute because um, I didn't just pluck that title out of the sky. It's actually taken from a quote by the same diarist, Monk Lewis, who was seen as a quite benign absentee landowner um, and slave owner. But he kept a diary on the two occasions when he went to... Jamaica and visited his 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 uh, properties and he had plantations at either end of the island and at some point he witnesses brutality meted out to women on both plantations both of which involved women being kicked in the belly one of those incidents resulted in the permanent injury to the woman herself and the other resulted in the death of her child and the, the quote that he he makes is that it rather seems to him that black women are kicked in the belly from one end of jamaica to the other and he says he feels justified in making this observation because he's seen it with his own eyes so a kick in the belly i think is a very resonant way of beginning to address the whole experience of enslavement both in terms of how it was received by women but also in terms of the kick That they gave back. Um, In terms of other quotes I think um, some of the quotes that were left to us by a man called John Steadman who was a a soldier um, fighting in Dutch Suriname who happened to fall madly in love um, with an enslaved woman when he was on the island and therefore had possibly a more humane and sympathetic view of of the the enslaved. His his stories of the brutality that he saw, and again, some of the stories behind that brutality, I think, resonate very loudly. Um, Because, as, as you rightly pointed out earlier, there were very few opportunities for the enslaved themselves to leave behind their own version of how it felt to be on the receiving end. And he talks about a young woman he encountered, for example, who was being literally flayed alive. She was given 200 lashes for refusing the licentious approaches of an overseer. And when she continued to refuse, he gave her 200 more. And he said literally he watched her being flayed alive. Um, those kinds of stories just bring home to you how appalling that experience must have been. But there are other stories which present a more hopeful note and and other quotes i think some of which are contemporary quotes referring back to people like um, nanny of the maroons who was a formidable fighter um, and who is remembered and revered even to this day for her refusal to give in to the attempts of europeans to subdue the maroons um, up in the blue mountains Um, Another quote that resonated with me was left to us by Edward Long, who was a a governor in the early years in Jamaica and who, who again, kept quite a detailed record of his experience. And he wasn't particularly sympathetic, but he refers to um, the uh, rebellion that's referred to as Tacky's Rebellion. I think it was 1776, um, when a slave, an enslaved woman was seen to be seated under an an umbrella in the same way as you'd see Ashanti kings seated under an umbrella now. And she was encouraging the slaves to resist and take up arms and fight back. Now, what's interesting about her is that although we see her through his eyes as perhaps a figurehead, um, he then further on refers to the fact that she was captured She was deported and she persuaded the the captain of the ship to put her down on another side of the island. And she made her way back to the rebels, picked up arms and continued to fight and was only subdued when she was eventually captured and executed. So far more than uh, than a figurehead, quite clearly quite a crucial figure in terms of slave resistance. And I think it's stories like that that have to for us represent all the nameless women who were never named
0: mm-hmm. um, of course all, all these women's lives played out in the West Indies, but the whole institution um, that kept them enslaved was instigated back in Britain and you speak about in the in your introduction about the way in which we remember slavery in Britain, this side of the pond as it were how successful or not, do you think that we have been in Britain today at recognising and addressing this aspect of our nation's history?
2: Um, I think, to be honest, we've got a way to go. Certainly in the context of Black Lives Matters, there's been a revived discussion about these issues, not just about slavery, but also about colonialism and imperialism. And I think that conversation is long overdue. I think it's really important for a nation's own health that it owns its history warts and all. And certainly that history is nothing to be proud of. Um, in terms of my own experience as a teacher for much of, uh, of my early career, certainly, and subsequently as someone who's worked quite closely with other teachers to try to decolonize the curriculum, as it's now called, um, I know attempts have been made, quite valiant attempts have been made over the years to begin to address the whitewashing of history and the invisibility of black people in British history. But my own feeling is that part of the problem is that we still refer to this entity, black history, as if somehow it exists on another planet, separate to the history that the mainstream history that we're all taught. It wasn't separate, it didn't drop from another planet. There is no great in Great Britain without looking at the story of enslavement and colonialism, if only because of the wealth that poured into Britain as a result of those two enterprises. And I I sincerely hope that that debate will continue, that it won't just be a flash in the pan. Those of us who are old enough remember civil rights. We remember these debates coming to the fore during the Skarman Report, during the Fursten Report. There have been times in... Britain's History, where we had these discussions before and they've kind of gotten everybody excited and then petered out as some new flavour of the month uh, took its place. So I think that it's important that we keep these issues on the agenda and that we recognise that it's not just a discussion about history. That actually to do justice to this debate, we need to be looking at the absence or the invisibility of black people in every single area of the curriculum, it's, 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 it's definitely been whitewashed out of most of what we learn. And I think it's only with that kind of intelligent discussion that we can begin to redress the imbalance that you refer to um, and begin to tell the history in the way it should be told. Because From the point of view as someone who's worked quite tirelessly over the years to address what's happening in our schools to young black people. I think it's really important that we begin to tell the story of slavery in the same language as we tell the story of the Holocaust or as we tell the story of the French resistance. In other words, that we big up some of those people who had the courage and the bravery to fight back and to resist. Why? Because... We still hear stories of African-Caribbean children feeling offended when the issue is raised in the classroom, not wanting to own that history. And I feel that that suggests a real lack of understanding of how proud they should be of that history and how proud they should be of surviving that history. Now, I don't want to paint a, a rosy picture. There were aspects of that history that weren't at all palatable, um, and for both the enslaved and their descendants and the enslavers and their descendants, we need to acknowledge the fact that it wasn't all rosy, that some people did things that we're not proud of. But I think the surviving narrative has to be about what an amazing feat it was for people to come through what must have been one of the most brutal episodes in human history, and not only live to tell the tale, but live to tell the tale with laughter, with song, with dance, with exuberance, and with creativity.
0: That was Stella Dadsey. Her book, A Kick in the Belly, Women, Slavery and Resistance, is out now, published by Verso. If you enjoyed this episode then please do leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on medieval travel.